So here at Green Gulch today, a number of us, about half of the Sangha, is having the opportunity to, to practice a half-day sitting, uh, sitting upright, many of them spaced in the zendo. I want to thank you for being here, for sitting today, and ask you to please continue your sincere and upright sitting as you practice with the talk today. Just more zazen that we practice together. So in addition to my role here at Green Gulch as the head of practice, I also uh, support in whatever way I can and have for many years supported the Buddha Dharma Sangha at San Quentin. And as an extension of our program inside for the last few years, we've been holding twice a year events here at Green Gulch for any Sangha members on the outside who can come. And this year, since we can't meet in person, we're weaving our event this time around the talk this morning. It was really sweet to see many of you here. Thank you, Buddha Dharma Sangha, for being here. And a bow to our late founding teacher, Xedo de Barros. You know, our circle is the fruit of his persistent and compassionate presence. So I want to talk today about something near at hand. I want to talk today about being overwhelmed. You say it's good to talk about something you know. So I thought, I, well, I know being overwhelmed. My, my special friend. And I had this thought actually many months ago around March, if any of you remember, way back in March, I thought, wow, this is kind of overwhelming. I should, I should talk about being overwhelmed. And then the rest of the summer just kept relentlessly unfolding. And so we have this overwhelming global pandemic tragic consequences, lives and livelihoods, the economic collapse, and this mass isolation from each other's bodies, this painful distance. I mentioned uh, that the Buddha Dharma Sangha is represented here, and from the outside, we've been watching as closely as we can. We learn how terrible this disease has been for our Dharma brothers inside San Quentin. It's so disturbing and overwhelming. And so everyone's sentence, however long or short it was to be, is suddenly maybe a death sentence. Not the idea. This awful, breathtaking illness and so little support, so little chance to really be, be held and healed in that space. No, no air, you know, no circulation, no windows. So these apparently 26 men inside already have died. And they report maybe 2200 uh, are sick or have been sick, which is well over half of the population. And it may well be more. 
And we heard from inside some folks just declining to be tested, feeling that if they are positive, they maybe will just get isolated further. So this is an overwhelming tragedy. And uh, my heart is with those suffering just down the road here. So then, as the magnitude as spring unfolded into summer and the magnitude of the pandemic was making itself clear to us, then we witnessed together the murder of George Floyd, the great mass uprisings for racial justice, this great and overdue awakening that his murder sparked in many of us. It's overwhelming and continues to be. Now, just this week, Jacob Blake with seven bullets in the back while his kiddos looked on. Kids about my age, my kids' age, are watching as he's shot seven times in the back. Paralyzed and shackled to the bed in the hospital. So overwhelming overwhelming suffering, overwhelming racism, overwhelming evidence of overwhelming systemic racism, and also overwhelming how many of us want to turn away, retreat back under the covers of denial, and just get back to normal. And that's in a way what's at stake in, in this question of being overwhelmed, of working with, of meeting our overwhelm is that part of what we do when we're overwhelmed is we, we shut down. We try to shut it off. And I see that happening in myself and all around. Let's just go back under the covers. So then it's already seemed all boiling over and the fires, <laughs> you know, and so the trees too just couldn't take it, you know, erupted into flames and forests around us here nearby at Green Gulch and Point Reyes, as we know, are down at Tassajara too, you know, becoming used to checking the air quality, getting used to this fine layer of ash over things. So Tassajara getting evacuated again. We at Green Gulch packing our go bags again overwhelming. So I wonder if you're feeling relaxed yet at this Zen talk. <laughs> I sometimes help with the hosting of these talks and on occasion have gotten a chat, someone reaching out to me. <laughs> um, please, <laughs> help me relax. Help us relax. We come for uplift, of course. We come for a way forward. So are we relaxed yet? I think often of a, a well-respected scholar of Buddhism. It may have been, been Griffith Folk. I don't, I don't remember right now his name. But he said that while we in the modern West often frame Buddhism as stress reduction, why are you talking about all this stuff? <laughs> You're stressing me out. I was already stressed out. 
Buddhism is about stress reduction. We're supposed to be releasing our stress. So this scholar said, uh, you know, we call, in the West often we call Buddhism stress reduction, but it would be more true to the tradition to call it stress induction. <laughs> so if this practice is about bringing to the surface, calling forth what's difficult and painful, the, the facts of life, of no self, of suffering, of impermanence, and facing them. So we find the stress, we, we call up the stress, we open to the stress, we can move towards it, and then we can transform it at its root. So this is an important point. Relaxation is not exactly the goal. Transformation is the goal. And relaxation can be part of that. But so is turning towards the stress and the pain, opening to the depths of the overwhelm, truly receiving and transforming that. So relaxation can help create the conditions for us to, to notice how <laughs> profoundly overwhelmed we are but it's not the goal. So as they say, you're welcome <laughs> for <laughs> reminding you all of what incredible times we live in. This all somehow is called 2020. That's sort of our shorthand <laughs> for these uh, overwhelming situations. So in all of this overwhelming difficulty, all this suffering and constriction around. I feel it's hard to stay awake and alert and responsive. I notice in this overwhelmed state, I start being careless with myself and in my relationships, being short and reactive. It's okay. It's okay to be short and reactive and overwhelmed. But it makes it hard to keep meeting our life and to keep meeting each other with our full heart, our deepest vow, with our clarity of practice. You know, there's all of these huge issues around. And then for me, in the in the day-to-day, -day, I'm in the situation called online elementary school. <laughs> So um, as a first grader and a fifth grader, so I'm a first grader, six years old, and is expected to be on Zoom for, for about four and a half hours <laughs> every morning. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what worksheet, you know, the teacher will say, okay, now get the worksheet. That's the, and just crying in frustration every day, every day, so frustrating. The pressure to achieve something and also just the confusion about what to do. So I'm finding I need to be there with him, try to be there with him. And we have overwhelmed teachers and overwhelmed students and overwhelmed parents. I also manage recess, <laughs> which is at different times for the different kids. And of course, the staff, the lunchroom. So my, you know, in appreciating the stress of that, the overwhelm, that that can be on top of everything. Really, I feel deep respect and sadness for those who, who really can't be a present for this online learning the way that I'm privileged to be. As hard as, it, as hard as it is, I can't imagine just needing to leave 
and leave them alone as though the online, the Zoom could educate them. So, you know, drip, drip, drip this cup that's already overflowing just keeps getting more in it. So turn off the spigot already, right? We all just <laughs> want to turn off, turn down the spigot. And it seems the handle has broken off. Somehow the water just keeps pouring out. And those of us at, at Green Gulch who have, are familiar with the plumbing here may, <laughs> may know this situation well. The water is just gushing out, you know, shouting, where's the shutoff valve? <laughs> Nobody can remember people fanning out to open lids and look for the shutoff valve. So we need to find the shutoff valve. We should turn off the spigot, this drip drip of suffering and the causes of suffering. As bodhisattvas, we vow to find these vows. We vow to turn off the spigot of suffering and the causes of suffering. Even if we're not sure where they are. Even if the map is buried in the maintenance office somewhere. Or maybe it's right in front of us. So I picture my, my personal overwhelm as this cup overflowing, just more and more. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh reminds us of another image, not of adding water to water, but of putting salt in water. So he writes, the Buddha offered this wonderful image. If you take a handful of salt and pour it into a small bowl of water, the water in the bowl will be too salty to drink. So spoon by salty spoon this year, the little water bowl <laughs> called Jiryu is getting saltier and saltier. It scoops, more and more scoops coming into this little water bowl and occasionally some big dumps and more little scoops. And it's too salty to drink. It's too salty to nourish others, too salty for plants and too salty for animals too salty to be of much use to those around me. And maybe you know that feeling. Maybe you know what I mean. So Thich Nhat Hanh continues. If you take a handful of salt and pour it into a small bowl of water, the water in the bowl will be too salty to drink. But if you pour the same amount of salt into a large river, people will still be able to drink the river's water. Because remember, this teaching was offered 2,600 years ago when it was still possible to drink from rivers. <laughs> so if you pour the same amount of salt into a large river, people will still be able to drink the river's water. Because of its immensity, the river has the capacity to receive and transform. So as, as bodhisattvas, we try tirelessly to reduce the salt in the bowls of suffering beings. This is our great vow and the great work that we vow before and try humbly to enact. But also as bodhisattvas, we know that our capacity to meet and respond to and reduce the suffering depends on our own nourishing, our own receptive and transformative capacity. 
So at the same time we work to reduce the salt flowing into these bowls, we're studying and practicing how to widen in ourselves, how to widen this receptacle, how to deepen this river that's receiving scoop after scoop of salt. So this practice of enlarging that bowl, of deepening that river, we call Shanti Paramita, this profound and profoundly beneficial the bodhisattva practice for all beings of um, tolerance or capacity, inclusiveness, welcoming. So this Shanti Paramita is medicine for overwhelmed bodhisattvas. And I've been searching around for it and trying to take it. I wanted to talk about that practice today. Before I do though, I want to say something that I, that's important to me that I find myself saying again and again, which is that this practice of the Buddha Dharma, this, this practice of Zen, um, is for our own heart. It's for each of our own heart. Sometimes we share it with someone um, when they ask. <laughs> Sometimes maybe ask three times, like, are you sure? You all today, you know, have arrived to hear the Dharma. So you, you've arrived to hear the Dharma for yourself, to see what light that shines on your own heart. And as we begin the talk, we, we tell each other this. We, we do this chant that says, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. I'm here for the teaching that it may enter my own heart. We do not listen to the Dharma. We do not come here to learn some ideals or some ideology that will then get to use to judge others or advise others, or much less demean others or ourselves. Uh, so we don't gather ammunition <laughs> from the Dharma to use against ourselves and each other. So I, I feel and uh, worry, another scoop of salt here, about this wrong view, this, we could say, heretical uh, way of using the Dharma, which would be to see the Buddha's analogy of the salty water bowl and say, look over there at that being who's, who's reacting, who's hateful, who's crushed by overwhelm. They are like salty water. Surely it's because they're failing to practice the Shanti Paramita. Or likewise, to look within at our own deep pain and suffering, our own reactivity and hatred and brokenness and say, you're not practicing tolerance. You shouldn't be feeling this way if you were practicing tolerance. If you were a wide river, it wouldn't be so salty if you were a better Buddhist. So this is a profoundly wrong understanding, uh, uh, an offensive use of the, of the beautiful teachings. If we taste some salty water, we can't assume that the bowl is small. We have no idea how much salt went into the bowl. <laughs> we can't know and can't speak of how much salt is in someone else's bowl. 
we can't taste the saltiness and then make some estimate of the depth <laughs> of the river. We don't know how much salt was in. What are the conditions? This may be a person with great capacity for suffering. Great capacity to meet and welcome their life. And yet sometimes there's just too much salt. And also we can't in ourselves, with our own suffering, know the extent of that condition, of how much salt we're working with. So sometimes there's just so much salt that it overwhelms any river. The ocean is inconceivably deep and wide. And in this overwhelming time for our climate, even the ocean is getting saltier. <laughs> or the sky, the sky is vast without limit. And as we know, when enough forest burns, the air is thick and choked. So we don't fault the ocean. Well, it was not deep enough. The ocean wasn't deep enough to deal with climate change. Or we don't fault the sky. It must not be vast enough that it be smoky this morning. I see the, the AQI, right? We're all now assessing, many of us, the air quality index. <laughs> Every morning, can I go outside? The air quality index is 180 today. The sky really should be practicing more spaciousness. Of course, the sky is inconceivably vast. There's just a ton of, a ton of smoke. It's just a lot of smoke. So please don't, don't use this understanding to judge the depth or shallowness of a person. So we may see a person who's enraged or numb or addicted or cruel really suffering from any affliction. We can't say, geez, they should practice meditation. Their capacity must not be very great. We don't know. So my wish, you know, is that we hear this call to, to capacity, to Kshanti Paramita, as a, a positive growth for us, not as a negative judgment. So we can practice growing our capacity, deepening this river, while also absolutely respecting and appreciating the deep and well-earned suffering of ourselves and everyone we meet. So the translator for His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Geshe Thabten Jimpa, summarizes the teaching of the Dalai Lama uh, on Kshanti, which he translates as patience, as a resolute response against adversity stemming from a settled temperament unperturbed by either external or internal disturbance. So this, this Kshanti Paramita, this medicine for overwhelm, this welcoming or inclusiveness, is a resolute response against adversity stemming from a settled temperament 
unperturbed by either external or internal disturbance. And goes on to say, certainly this cannot be described as passive submission. Rather, it is an active approach toward adversity. So Akshanti is the capacity to respond. It's, it's what allows the water to be nourishing. It's, it's what allows us to respond when we manage to respond rather than react. So it's a resolute response be wide enough to not have to turn away and not turning away to be able to, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, receive and transform. So the great river is not turning away from the salt, it's being with. We know, you know, when we practice this paramita, when we welcome, include, widen our capacity to be with what is that it's the, it's the very opposite of turning away. We turn away because we don't have the capacity. We don't develop the capacity if one has to turn towards. So this is the receptivity that allows us to, to meet what's happening and to re respond with our bodhisattva vow. So to this point, I wanted to share a letter that I received just a few days ago from a member of our Buddha Dharma Sangha. This Sangha member is no longer at, at San Quentin. He was transferred a year or two ago to another uh, prison. And we were really sad to lose him from our Sangha. So he writes about this, this very practice and what it has been for him, and I wanted to share that. I'll read, I'll read much of the letter, but not all of it. So he says, since I arrived here at the new facility, so much has happened and my practice has really helped me through it. So first he tells of some violence that's occurred in the prison, uh, some murders inside, some stabbing. He says, after the stabbing stopped, then there was the killing of George Floyd and other African-Americans and all the protests. Then came the COVID-19 and all the deaths from it. A couple of my friends died from it in San Quentin. Now at this present time here, we have all these fires and it's so bad that you can see a haze of smoke in our building. So the readings you sent could not have come at a better time when there's so much suffering going on. But most importantly, I found myself just suppressing all these tragic events one after another. So I've decided to take the time out to sit mindfully with each of these tragic events and send loving kindness and compassion to all those affected by each of these tragic events. While doing this, I felt the hurt and tears 
build up in my eyes because I had been suppressing my feelings, which was causing me suffering. What I truly needed to do was show loving kindness and compassion to myself. Lama Rod Owen said, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to have this experience of being pissed off right now. And I'm not going to hide out from it. I'm not going to push it away. I'm going to hold it and take care of it. I wasn't okay with the hurt I was feeling or the suffering. So I was suppressing it. Pushing it away, as Lama Rod Owen said. But now by sitting with these feelings, like I have a bowl in my hands with each tragic event inside of it. I will hold it and take care of it by using the breath. Breathing in, I see all these tragic events and all who have been affected by them. And breathing out, I send loving kindness and compassion to all who have been affected by these events. In doing this, I'm practicing the first paramita, dana paramita, offering joy, happiness, and love. As Thai says, when we give, the other might become happy, but it is certain that we become happy. Thank you for, for hearing those words from our Dharma brother, the sincere heart of practice. Who, you know, in, in his overwhelm, turns towards the teaching and notice, noticed that he was suppressing his suffering, his experience, his grief. He had been turning away, and through his practice, he remembers that he doesn't have to turn away. And right there, not turning away, finding that capacity to be with this incredible pain. Right there, he reawakened his heart and opened his response of authentic compassion. I know this is so. I can, I can see him now uh, walking and sitting and working in the prison, expressing and sharing this deepened compassion. This being with this difficulty, being turning towards finding that capacity to sit with uh, this suffering reminds him, it doesn't break, break him. You know, that's our fear. That's overwhelm. I can't let this in. If I let this in, it will break me. And yet when we take the time, hold mindfully with, make a bowl for each of these tragic events, sit with it and grieve and feel uh, far from breaking you know, we remember our compassionate vow and then can express it. So by being with the difficulty, he was able to recover his, his true response, his loving and compassionate heart. And as we all know, that's not a one-time <laughs> show. That's like again and again, unfortunately. Um, of course, he has done this before, <laughs> which is why he remembered how to do it. And yet, you know, we forget. 
So our Dharma brother practiced with his um, his overwhelm with a different bowl metaphor. He made it, he made a, a beautiful uh, hand carved, lovingly carved bowl for each of these overwhelming events, so he could look at it and be with it and care for it. And then he consciously sat with each one, practicing a form of tonglen, using the breath to allow the suffering truly in, not resisting the pain of it, welcoming that, and then using the breath to extend his deep compassion and loving kindness out. So I'm inspired by his practice. So I want to um, just mention some other aspects of practicing Shanti Paramita. Other ways we might train in this, if you feel like I do, that you could use a little more capacity, <laughs> that this river is getting rather salty and could stand to be a little deeper. We might turn towards how we can train in, in deepening this capacity. I think the first step or the basis is a noticing, knowing that this is a capacity that can be trained. So this is true of all the of all the paramitas. You know, we're not we don't just have a certain size bowl. <laughs> I'm just kind of a small bowl, or I'm just kind of a mid-sized creek. We um, it's not like that. This it's it's trainable. These bowls can be enlarged, and the, these rivers can be deepened. So even just that insight is so powerful to reflect on in our own life. Like, am I stuck with the capacity that I think I have? <laughs> or can I actually deepen my capacity to be with suffering? So the insight of this paramita is yes. And all, all the Buddhas and ancestors, all the bodhisattvas have trained in this capacity. They weren't just like, wow, the Buddha was so such a wide river, all of this suffering, and he remained a nourishing uh, pool for beings. He trained in that. We can train in that. This is what we're doing here is training in that. So first remembering that, that we can grow this. This is something to grow. So a basic way that we deepen it is by allowing each, as our friend inside did, allowing each overwhelming thing to help our capacity deepen. So in the Buddha Dharma, we use our suffering we recruit our suffering in support of our practice. Sometimes, and maybe you're not ready for this. I'm seldom <laughs> ready for this. Um, but our practice of cultivation needs affliction. There could be such a person who becomes grateful <laughs> for, their, for their, that overwhelm, grateful for the opportunity that it's offering to deepen. I wouldn't have been able to deepen if I hadn't received so much that I had to deepen with. So we can use this overwhelm to help our capacity grow, to remind us that we are training in this. This, as I often say, is to allow the suffering, allow the affliction, allow the problem to become a bell, to just resound as a bell calling us back to practice. And then we hear the bell that's our suffering and we're able to be grateful for the opportunity to practice.
Uh, so it helps if we're if we're training and working with overwhelm, if we're training and widening our capacity to see the overwhelm, um, just to see the overwhelm. Our friends in, in Vipassana offer this wonderful practice of labeling. It's helpful. You know, when I'm when I'm shut down and reactive and overwhelmed, if you would ask me, I would say, I'm not overwhelmed. <laughs> it's just everybody is, you know, it's just all too much. That's not me. That's just it. <laughs> you know, it's all too much. Uh, yeah, that's not a real workable situation. <laughs> There's not a lot that can be done with that mind, in that mind, until it takes that backward step, until it pivots and sees, oh, this is overwhelm. So that's the label. From like, this is just true, it just is too much. From that, just, just that little thought, that little label, um, just stick a little note on it, oh, this is overwhelm. <laughs> and then some transformation can begin. This is mindfulness in the strict sense of knowing what our, knowing how our mind is, knowing if our mind is in a wholesome or unwholesome um, spin. So to say, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Suddenly I have something now I can work with. It's just too much. <laughs> I don't have much to work with, you know, except for run around, as I was saying, looking for the valve to shut it all off, yelling at someone else to get on the damn valve. As soon as I say, oh, this is overwhelmed, now I can, now I can work it. Now I have something to work with. So every time we can do that, name it, our capacity grows a little bit. So this cultivation of Shantiparmita spaciousness, capacity in our practice is, is basically embodied. It's a practice of our bodies becoming able to bear <laughs> a training in widening our hearts and our deep mind and our bodies, widening this capacity. So we can talk about how to do this practice. We can talk about this practice Shantideva in his great text for Bodhisattvas gives us lots of words to work with since it's a text. That's sort of what he has to work with. And he offers up some ways we can like talk ourselves out of hatred, for example. But in our practice, in Zen maybe especially, basically it's embodied. Basically it's training in having in a spacious body that can receive this is our zazen practice, practicing receiving more and more of what's around us. We don't just practice focusing more and more narrowly. We practice receiving more and more widely all of what is. And as we do that, our capacity to be with everything grows. We might not know it. We might not even be able to grasp it. But the body is transforming through this practice. This is our faith and our experience of zazen. The heart and body is somehow bigger through this practice. So a few weeks ago, um, many of us had the chance to participate in a weekend retreat here at Zen Center with 
Abbas Schrader and Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. And Reverend Angel offered a grounding practice that I found very impactful. Embodied practice of recovering our ground, of finding our center and our, our capacity in our ground. So she had to stand and center ourselves and then gave some guidance of the kind that we use in our practice. Feeling the support around us. Of our ancestors, of the bodhisattvas, the presence of supportive beings, the feeling in our body, that deep center, this grounded connection to ourselves. So we can practice that in Zazen. And having uh, supported with her words and presence the arising of a very grounded state in us, she invited us to call into that space some irritation, some small annoyance in our life. Why would I? Why would I do that? You know, don't harsh my mellow, as we say. Why would I do that? And yet here I am, standing, standing, grounded, supported calling forth. And it's remarkable how easy it is, even in this time, you know, of great tragedy, the little irritations are still <laughs> totally available. <laughs> it was very easy to, to find something to bring into that, you know, still, because still, even in all of this, the everyday is a series of small irritations, right? Each made more overwhelming by the overwhelming backdrop. But these small annoyances, these impingements, something that I don't want to let in because it shouldn't be doing that. So these little salty teaspoons, you know. So she, she had us bring that in, and it was amazing how, you know, to allow that little irritation to float into this space of great groundedness and settledness. It was really informative as a way that I might meet bigger pains, that I might meet deeper suffering, deeper tragedy crisis. So that starting small, you could say, if you want to cultivate Shantiparamita, maybe don't start with like everything, <laughs> but just one of those little teaspoons. Can we be with that in a different way? What would that be to not be holding it out, to not be keeping it out? to let it in and feel our capacity to meet it totally. You know, the water can stay nourishing. So along these lines, you know, I'll close soon. I wanted to close with a teaching I've been remembering from Suzuki Roshi that's along these same lines. The beautiful teaching about a squawking blue jay. Very small problem <laughs> in this time of such awesome problems. Um, but this beautiful teaching about the squawking blue jay and how we might let it right into our heart. I want to close with these uh, few minutes of, a couple of minutes of Suzuki Roshi's life and teaching. Um, which is maybe um, so 
imprinted itself on me because it's one of the few teachings that we have some video of from Suzuki Roshi. So I'm feeling his call, how he's inviting us to work with this walking bird. Not as the whole of our practice, but as information, as a way that points to how we might work with all of this suffering, each of the pieces, each of these bowls of difficulty. I'm going to try to do this for us all. We could um, invite Suzuki Roshi for a moment. You can let me know if it shows on your screen. If you think when you are reading something, if you think bad is there, you know, Bruje is over my roof. <laughs> Bruje is singing, but Mm. Their voice is not so good, you know. When you think <laughs> in that way, that is noise, you know. <laughs> when you are not disturbed by, you know, by the blue jade, you know, the blue jade will come right into your heart, and you will be a blue jade, and blue jade will leading something. <laughs> Then the project doesn't disturb your reading because because you think project is there. Project should not be over my roof, you know. <coughs> when you think in that way, that is more primitive uh, understanding of being. Why we understand things in that way is uh, because of our want of practice, you know. <clears throat> when you practice Zazen more, you can accept things as your own, whatever it is, you know. So I've been endeavoring to practice in this way. to let in that which I feel is disturbing me, that which is impinging on me. And I glimpse through this practice, this possibility that Suzuki Roshi is so authentically reporting, <laughs> which is that when I stop trying to keep it out, it becomes my own life. There's room for it because it already is me. <laughs> it already is and has been my life. I accept it as my own. You accept it as your own. This is my life. Of course, there's room for it. You will be the Blue Jay and the Blue Jay will be reading something. The blue jay is not some obstacle to me. The blue jay is my life, and I am its life. But only when I open to the disturbance. I'm again practicing with this small blue jay. You know, Suzuki Roshi knew profound suffering. He knew the great work of this bodhisattva. 
is not just about, um, you know, opening to Blue Jays. <laughs> and yet he offers this as this way, and you might glimpse it too, this way of moving with all of this overwhelm, each of these teaspoons of salt. And so I want to thank everybody for coming. If you'd like to watch that clip again, it's on the Zen Center website. Are you ready to close, Chiryu? I think so. I'd like to, before we dedicate the merit with our chant, I'd just like to offer the merit of our gathering today, of our coming together. I want to offer that to the men inside, San Quentin first, and their loved ones, and all those who work inside San Quentin with them. This impossible and deadly situation. So we dedicate our practice to them and to all those suffering from racial violence and oppression, which is all of us, all of us suffering in the fact of this racial oppression. And to those impacted by these fires everywhere and those exhausting themselves to, to help beings. And so we offer this practice to all suffering beings. And I'm deeply grateful for your kind attention. <laughs>